My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity to teach uh, God's Word today as we wrap up this series called Who Am I? If you have a physical copy or digital copy of God's Word, we're going to be in two primary places this morning, uh, Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. Or the easiest way to follow along with uh, our talk today is by just pulling out your Northridge uh, Notes app, uh, and you can do that. If you have been around Northridge for any uh, number of time, the chances are you've heard us talk about community groups. And if you've ever been in a Northridge community group for the first time, or maybe over the past couple of weeks, you had some new group members jump in, or just in general, you've been in any group at all of people who did not know each other and your goal was to know each other, the chances are you did these infamous questions that we love to hate called icebreakers, right? These icebreaker questions where you get to answer questions like, who are you, what's your family like, what do you do for a job, and what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then somebody's like, I'm non-dairy. Um, but anyways, so it's your opportunity though, if you think about an icebreaker question, it's your opportunity to define you. Like you get to be the one that answers the question. Even if you may not like the answer of like what your job is or what your family dynamic is, like you are the one that gets to answer the question about you. When if you think about the arc of life, so often we go about our lives with other people setting a trajectory or a goal or a standard of who you are supposed to be. Think about when you're school age, if you're elementary all the way to seniors in high school, right? That our, our kids, or when you're a kid, you grow up like operating your life and trying to make choices based off of like what the bully or the popular kid says you're supposed to do. Like what's in, what's out, what to fear, what not to fear, what brands are in, what brands are out, what's funny, what's not funny, where to sit at lunch, like all the above. Like you operate your life based off of who, what somebody else says. And then you finally enter adulthood or maybe it's through college, you live your life based on the grade your professor says you're supposed to do. And then you finally get a job or, or whatever the case may be, when you get into adulthood, you have this person in your mind that you identify like, I wanna be where they're at. So what decisions did they make to get there? Like they're a homeowner, they're married, they have kids, they've arrived at their career. What decisions did they make and how can I make those same decisions to get to where they are? It's somebody else setting this course of trajectory in your life to say you are supposed to do this for you. Most of our life, we have all these different voices competing with our identity, competing with what we're supposed to do or not do. And in the scriptures today, we're going to see three counterfeit voices. And you can really identify them in your own life too, if I just uh, allowed you a piece of paper and some time, right? And these three counterfeit voices that we're going to see is your voice, our enemy's voice, and culture's voice. Those three different counterfeit voices of setting us on a trajectory of who we are and what we're supposed to do or be in our lives. And self-admittedly, two of those voices are not always exclusively negative in our life. If you think about our own voice, our own voice, our own conscience, our own wants, our own desires, they're not always negative in our life. But in this story that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, it is negative. And if you also think about our culture's voice, culture, when I talk about culture, I'm talking about like our environment. It could be pop culture, media, social media. It could be uh, the new movie you watched on Netflix because it's telling us a story about a vision of the good life and what it is and how to get it. Uh, but it also could be just your uh, friends, your family members, what they say that you should like, not like, and all these different things. And in the first story, you're going to see that the culture's voice, the environment's voice is negative in this case. And so we're going to read Genesis chapter 3 with this uh, set in, in our mind of 
trying to identify these three voices of where they appear in the story. We've looked at Genesis chapter three in this series and over the past couple of months uh, here at Northridge. So I'm not going to like dig into it and tear it all apart of what's happening, but I want you to just notice the three voices in what they're doing. So Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Drew in week two of this series talked about the, the devil or the serpent, the enemy. He's a liar and he uh, uses lies as his primary tactic to twist God's word and God's truth. So we won't spend much time there, but you can go back in week two and, and see that. But we see the first counterfeit voice, the enemy's voice here present in the story, twisting God's word, telling a half truth or full lies uh, to the woman. In verse six, here we go, continue reading. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now in verse six, we notice the two other voices. We see the, the woman's own voice or her interior uh, dialogue with herself that we're given uh, insight to that she's examining the fruit that the, uh, the serpent was talking about and, and, and warring within herself of like, yes, it looks good. It may be doing this. It's her own voice. And then we see a silent culture's voice that the culture, her environment that's around her, her husband is also with her. The man is also with her, but he is silent. And so we see the, her environment's voice playing a role in her decision-making as well. And it does it in our lives too, whether it's speaking out loud and pointing us very clearly in a direction or not. And now verse seven. When then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so here we realize that after they did the thing that the enemy was wanting them to do, and then their, their self even said, oh yeah, that looks good. And then their environment was silent to it. So they went ahead and went forward. When they did this, something changed. They adjusted themselves because they now felt shame for some reason. And so these loosely, admittedly, these three voices, the enemy's voice, our own voice and culture's or environment's voice around us, when they lead these down this direction, it caused the first man and first woman to sin. But now that's a word that we don't use in our modern uh, dialect every day. If you're not a follower of Christ, or even if you are, sin is not a word we talk about a lot. So we need to define that. In biblical definitions, it could be simply defined as missing the mark or leaving the path or falling short of God's moral standard in our life. But I want to give us a helpful definition when we're thinking about it in the context of our identity, our true self, our rootedness. And it, sin is this. Anytime humans define what is good for themselves or others apart from God. It's anytime we as human beings define what is good for ourselves or for someone else apart from God. Because if we look at these three counterclaims in Genesis chapter three, what is being claimed for them in their own wants and desires, the enemy's desires and their cultures is seeking their own autonomy. They're wanting separation from themselves and God. 
And there's three lies. There's three counterclaims that the servant says. It says, you won't die. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. And this is what happens. Adam and Eve, in one sense, did become like God, but for whatever reason, it wasn't a good thing. Because when their eyes got opened, the second thing is, it apparently wasn't in a good way because they felt shame. And ultimately, Adam and Eve did die, but immediately what happened is, in a very spiritual sense, their connectivity to God was cut off. Their intimate presence and awareness of him was severed for whatever reason. So when they heard him, their reaction was to run and hide. And if you remember the context of what just happened, we see the last verse that we'll read in Genesis 3, God's response. Genesis 3, 9. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Where are you? And in this moment, in the scriptures, it's not God seeking new information, like he's lost the humans. Like he's like, where did I put those things at again? I can't remember. No, that's not what's happening at all. Do you see this as an invitation or an extension of God's grace? Because he realizes what Adam and Eve have done is they've rebelled against him. They've self-identified their own autonomy from him and he's extending them an opportunity to come back, to turn from what they've done and to come back to him. He asked the question, where are you? And in the first week of this series, Drew set the foundation to talk about how God is our creator and we are his creation. Or God is the potter, we are the clay. If you were here, we have this cool potter clay dynamic sitting up right over here on the stage. And, and so in the midst of that, and the final challenge that Drew um, talked about in the close of week one was if you differ from your own understanding of your identity or who you believe you are and who God is to just stick around. Give us four weeks to, under, to unpack God's word and what it would say and you make the conclusions from what you feel God's word is saying. And so I wanna ask you that question. The same question that God extended to Adam and Eve. Where are you? If you're a follower of Christ in the room today, as, as you identify own areas of your life, this is not just a sermon series for those who aren't followers of Jesus. For as followers of Jesus, I want to extend the question to you because there are areas in all of our lives where we are seeking to put down our roots or put our own hands back on our life and say, I got this area. I want to ask you the question, where are you? In what areas of your life have you put your hands back on it and say, I got this. I don't need your insight, God. I don't need your direction. I don't need it. And if you remember what the definition of sin is that we just looked at, it's any time we define for ourselves what is good for me or good for someone else apart from God. When we're seeking our own autonomy in this world, but in the midst of all that, in the midst of all the voices that are chiming into who you need to be or who I need to be, where I need to go, what the good life is for me or for you, whose voices are we listening to, the counterfeits or the real thing? The question is that we have to ask is like, okay, how do I know the real thing? How do I know what, what God's word and how do I distinguish his voice in the midst of all these other voices? 
Well, back in the summer, my uh, wife and I, at the end of this work day, at the, it was in August, I believe, um, I was checking the mailbox and like the real mailbox, not like my email. I know I'm young, but not that young, okay? I still get real paper mail. Um, I haven't gone paperless on everything, okay? Uh, but anyways, I was getting the mail out of the mailbox and we had some plans for the end of that day, that day. And um, I go out to the mailbox and I grab our mail and I'm, I'm kind of flipping through it. We're getting our kids ready to load up in the van and going somewhere. I can't remember where we're going, but... I was flipping through and there was this one uh, like blank envelope. It just had like our names like in type, not somebody handwritten. So it's like looked official. I'm like, what is this? So I kind of rip it open and I pull it out and it's just a check with my name and my wife's name on it. It's addressed to both of us from the US government, from the IRS for a couple thousand dollars. And I was like, hey, this has never happened to me. Uh, like, and I was like looking at it and I was like, this is probably fake. All right, let me be real. This is somebody who's like trying to scam me. But then the thought in my head was like, why would somebody trying to scam me by giving me money? I don't know, that doesn't make any sense. So I give it to my wife and she looks at it and she's like, is this real? And I was like, I don't know, what do you think? She's like, probably not, this is probably a scam. Like we're both like very skeptical in nature when it comes to somebody else giving us money because that usually never happens. And so I was like, what do we do? We take it to the bank. Do they arrest people who try to cash fraudulent checks? Will I go to jail if I do this? I don't want to go to jail if I do this. This is, I don't know. I just feel like I just throw this away. And she's like, no, let's not throw it. Just call Jeff. That's what she said. Just call Jeff. Jeff's uh, our, who does our taxes. He's an accountant. And so I, I call Jeff and he answers the phone. I'm like, hey, am I supposed to be getting more money back on my taxes? Is there something that I should be expecting? He goes, no, we did everything right. But he goes, what the heck? It's such a crazy year. Like, um, he goes, well, I don't know. Like, just take it to the bank. They'll know. Like, just walk into a bank and, and, and let them see the check. They'll be able to figure out if it's fraudulent or not. And I was like, okay, that's great. So we get in the car. We, we drive to the bank before we run our other errands. And, and I, I walk up to the teller at the bank like I've done something wrong. And I, I slide the check across to her. And I was like, ma'am, this is what's happened. I just need to know if this is real or not. And she goes, okay, well, well sir, there's several uh, security identifiers uh, that the U.S. government makes on their checks so that you know which one's real and what's not. So let's look at those together. And, and so she began to point out like all the security markers and she goes, sir, this is authentic. This is a real check. Um, congratulations. <laughs> so uh, I was like, well, thanks. But what's crazy is, is that bank teller wasn't sitting down lecturing me about all the new uh, fraudulent methods that new con artists are making up to scam people or, or to get fraudulent checks. And even when you think about paper money, like bank tellers and others, they, they don't study the, the counterfeits to figure out like how to distinguish the difference. They just know exactly what the real thing looks like. And then they're able to distinguish all other counterfeits from knowing exactly what the real thing looks like. And so when we think about our, our own life and our journey of following Jesus, the reality for us is the end result is not us abandoning culture and let's go hide in a cave somewhere. No, the real thing that we are called to do is to root ourselves in the real thing. And when we're rooted in the real thing, we can go out and engage our world and our culture distinguishing the real voice from all the other counterfeits. So when the voice creeps up inside of us saying like, this is what you need to do, you're like, no, nope, that's not from God. Or when the enemy's voice whispers in our ear like, this is the direction for your life, like, nope, that's not from God. Or when the culture paints us this different version of the good life, we know the difference between a counterfeit and the real thing. And the really cool part about scripture is from Genesis 3, there's a counterpart, not a counterfeit, but a counterpart. And the counterpart happens, you already know it because I've told you, Matthew chapter four. 
In Matthew chapter four, just some short context in this regard is Jesus has just been baptized in Matthew chapter three. And as Jesus is coming out of the water in Matthew chapter three, there's a voice from God the Father from heaven. He speaks these words over his son, Matthew three seventeen, And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. I want to just make these observations in this regard. This is the before Jesus starts his public ministry, before he's done any teachings, before he's healed any people, done any miracles. He has not multiplied any bread or fish yet. He's not done anything cool at all. And yet God, the father from heaven says, this is my son in him. I'm well pleased and I love him. It's not about what Jesus did that made him valuable. It's about who he was. And the same rings true for you and I. What makes us valuable members as children of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, as a son or daughter in God, as you are living your life in Christ, it's not about what you do, but it's about who you are in him that makes you valuable. And that's why God, a voice from heaven says, this is my son. In him, I'm pleased. And I love him. And this is what happens right after. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That is the biggest understatement in the Bible, okay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here, what we see is Jesus is physically weakened. He has resisted food for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry, all in a mission to uh, be tempted by the devil. That is the purpose. We see the purpose statement in Matthew 4.1, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is leading him into this thing because he needs to do this thing. And he starves himself. He physically is weakened, but he is spiritually at his strongest because he is connected to God. He is rooted in who he is. And then the devil comes right when he thinks he has Jesus where he wants him to tempt him and question his identity. We're going to read all three of these temptations together in one uh, big fatal swoop. And then we're going to compare and contrast Genesis 3 with Matthew 4. It says this in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse seven, Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 11, then the devil left him and the angels came to attend to him. I wanna point out, and they're not in your notes, so if you're gonna take notes, take them fast, four similarities between Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, but they also have differences. The very first thing I want you to notice is both temptations start with food, but they are in very different settings. In Genesis chapter 3, the temptation against food is in a garden that's filled with plenty. 
In Genesis 2, God tells the man and the woman, eat from whatever tree you want, except this one. And it's the one that they fall temptation to. In Matthew chapter 4, it's in the scarcity of a wilderness that Jesus is tempted to turn bread into, or stones into bread. He has nothing, and he's like, make something out of this nothing. The second similarity is we see both scenes are concerned with the truth and the goodness of God's word. Truth and goodness of God's word. But in Genesis 3, the humans deny what God said to be good or to be true, or both and, and they fall into temptation. But in Matthew chapter 4, each and every time Jesus is tempted to test or contradict the word of God, he reaffirms its truth and its goodness. That he says God's word is sufficient and I will stake my life on it and stand firm in it. Third similarity, both these scenes reveal the identity of those who are being tested. Both of them. Both of them reveal the man and the woman and Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, the humans are known by God, intimately and personally connected to him as his children, but those children doubt God's goodness as a loving father. They doubt that God had their best intention at heart. But in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus affirms that his father is good, loving, and trustworthy. And even when it's hard, I'll trust that he's good, he's loving, and he's trustworthy. And he proves himself to be the faithful and obedient son. Both of these scenes, the fourth and final similarity, set a pattern for two different ways to be human. Two different ways to be human. In Genesis chapter three, the human's example of expressive individualism and self-autonomy that we're best known for in the West leads them to death. To identify themselves apart from God and set their own path, blaze a new trail of what it means to be human, it leads them to death. But in Matthew chapter four, what we see is Jesus setting a new course of dependence on God and his word, which ultimately led to life. Jesus affirms that apart from him, we can do nothing. And if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room today, I want you to know that what it means to follow Jesus is not try hard, do good, do better. Because we're never, we will never be able to handle our own sin. That the truth is, on our own, we are not enough to handle our own sin problem. We can't earn our way back to God. Our good will never be good enough. And we'll never get back into the arms of a loving father on our own. And Satan is still today continuing to tell us lies that what we need is independence from God. What we need is personal autonomy. It will lead us to a path of life like you do you. But the truth of the matter is that does not lead us to life. But here's three ways to study the true voice of God's word. The first thing is this, spend time in God's word. Spend time in God's word. And if you're a Christian in this room, get ready for the three traditional answers, but let me unpack them hopefully very clearly with goals in mind. We don't study God's word so that we can know some cute scripture verses. We don't study God's word so that we can have a verse to throw at something when we hear a lie in our culture, in our own voice, or by the enemy. We study God's word with 1 Corinthians 2.16 in mind. And the goal of 1 Corinthians 2.16 is by taking on the mind of Christ. That we get into God's word until God's word gets into us and transforms us from the inside out. So that as we're going about our life, living our life, that we will learn 
to not only say the words Jesus said to quote some scripture, like he did in Matthew chapter four, but we'll learn to think like Christ, that we will have the renewed mind of Christ, that our thought life will be different. And that will ultimately lead us to respond and engage our world and act like Jesus acted, to become like Christ. That's the goal of us getting in God's word. It's not to just know what it says. Knowledge is not enough on its own, but knowledge paired with obedience will make us more like Jesus. We get into God's word until God's word gets into us and transforms us. The second thing is that we can do to study the real voice is spend time with God in prayer. We spend time with God talking to our loving Father that even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when we're being tempted beyond our own understanding or when things in our life are, don't make sense, we run to Him. He knows all of our needs before we ask. We run to Him trusting in Him and spending time with Him talking to Him. And the third thing is, you've already heard me talk about it at the beginning of the message, we spend with time in God's people in community. We spend time with God's people in community in his word, in prayer, and with other people in community. Because hopefully in a biblical community, there's older, wiser, more seasoned Christians who can help give you wisdom and insight that have lived a little bit more life than you. And you, as a member of that community, you've probably lived a little bit more life than somebody else. And you can help somebody else along the way. That the whole goal of these three things is learning to study the real voice. But I get the temptation if you're a follower of Jesus. It's like, yeah, we've heard this. Check, check, check. Like, I got this, Daniel. Like, I know I've I've been reading the Bible for some years now. Like, I got it. I'm, I'm good. I'm strong enough. I'm wise enough. I'm big enough. I can handle it. But the reality for that is, is when we get there as followers of Jesus, when we get to that place, we're like, yeah, 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 I get it. Bible, prayer, people. Like, yep. That's exactly where the enemy desires for us to be. Because we go wrong each and every time we define ourselves apart from God. We go wrong each and every time we define ourselves apart from God. When you say like, yeah, I've read enough Bible. Yeah, I'm wise enough. Yeah, I'm big enough. Yeah, I'm strong enough. We go wrong. Because the reality about Matthew chapter four, the amazing conclusion is not to go run and hide in a cave. But Matthew chapter four is actually Jesus's anchor point before he propels into ministry. If you read the rest of Matthew chapter four, it's not long, like literally the next verse after verse 11 is when Jesus begins to preach and teach about the kingdom of God that he begins to preach and teach, begins to heal, begins to do these miracles, begins to start revealing who he really is after he's been firmly rooted in who he is. After he's been firmly rooted in, yes, I am the son of God. My father is well pleased in me and I am loved by him. That his identity was rooted, it was anchored and that led him to be able to be propelled into the world, into the culture to influence it for good. But none of us are Jesus. None of us are are Jesus. So let me ask you the question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, because we're way more like them than we are like Jesus. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you on this journey of life? Whether you've never trusted in Jesus or you're still wrestling over your identity, 
or there's a few key area of your, areas of your life that you still have your grasp on, where are you? Because you and I, we're not the better Adam. Jesus was. Jesus is. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. What areas of your life do you need to reroute back in Him? Where are you? Where are you struggling to believe the truth of God's Word and actually live it out of what He declares to be true about you if you are following Him and what He has done on your behalf? Because this is just a few things God says about you. You can find these in the notes. They're not gonna be on the screen because let's be honest, I'm gonna go too fast. This is what God says about you being in Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen people and a royal priesthood. Psalms 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 17, the apple of God's eye. Matthew 5, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city on a hill. 1 Corinthians 6, a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, a part, a member of the body of Christ, the capital C, church. 2 Corinthians 5, new creation. 1 John 3, a child of God who is intimately known by him. That's who you are. Where are you though? Where are you in this journey? Where are you in this following Jesus? Where are, this is not a sermon series just to get people to come to believe in Jesus. This is a sermon series for every single one of us. Because it's not just about our position if you are in Christ, it's also about your direction. Because some of us may be at the foot of the cross with our backs turned to it. And we have areas of our life where we need to turn around and fix our eyes back on Jesus. Because the voices of this world, our own voice, the enemy's voice, are loud sometimes. Where are you? And I'll add a second question. Where are you headed? Because all of us have this invitation from God as he's calling out in the midst of the garden. Where are you? And it's an opportunity to turn back to him into the loving embrace of a father who knows what is best for us and to redeclare our dependence in him. Our bands are gonna come out and they're gonna sing one more song. And my prayer for you, my invitation for you is that you would listen to these words and you would allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart, asking you the question, where are you and where are you headed? I'm gonna pray for us. The bands are gonna come. You begin to prepare your heart if you haven't already. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing. In this room and other rooms across our physical locations and online, God, we pray that we would allow your Holy Spirit to knock on the door of our heart and we would allow it to be opened and we would listen and do what he's asking. That we would ask ourselves, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to ask us that where are we and where are we headed? And that we would listen to what he's asking us to do. For some of us, if it's giving our life to Jesus for the very first time as our leader and forgiver. And for others, if it's taking our hands off the wheel of our life and allowing you, you to reroute our identity in you. We ask these things, the name above every name, the name of Jesus.